You're listening to the Pulled by the Root podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.pulledbytheroot.com. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Heidi Marble. It is a foggy morning and I'm just looking out my window and feeling so grateful today that I'm back behind the microphone and that I'm joined by my amazing co-host and operations manager, Amy Hansen. And we have a very special guest today, Greg Gentry. As most of you know, he's very influential and helpful in the adoption community. And if you haven't heard of Greg, you are in for a treat today. And if you do know him, we're going to get to know him even better. So hi, Greg. Hi, Amy. Hi, Heidi. It's a real, real honor to be here, I wanted to say, and, and to be mm. speaking with both of you. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. So I wanted to read your bio really quickly. And then I was telling Amy, I'm very impatient. I want to I want to get right to one of the questions that, that is burning in my mind. So let me read this for the people so they know a little bit more about you. Greg Gentry is a domestic baby scoop era adoptee born in California in 1969. He spent the first six weeks of his life in foster care before going to live with his adoptive family. Greg has gone through the ups and downs of reunion with his maternal side since 2006. In 2021, a fellow adoptee helped him locate his paternal family. He has been in reunion with members of his late father's side since 2022 and continues to cultivate those relationships. Since July 2021, Greg has been an active member of the online and in-person adoptee communities. Greg is a facilitator and an interviewer for Fireside Adoptees, a private Facebook group which also runs a private group open to the larger adoption constellation. Additionally, Greg hosts in-person meetings for Adoptees Connect out of Derry, New Hampshire. Wow, Greg, you are busy. So when I asked Amy to have you talk to us about healing, you said, that's tricky. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Um, and again, thank you so much for the opportunity. I, I admire both of you so much. And oh. I really appreciate uh, the chance to be on Pulled by the Root. It's, uh, it's a great honor for me. Oh, thank you, Greg. It's an honor for us to have you. And I know that I, I have similar emotional temperament to you, Heidi, so I'm sure we'll get get the feels. Oh. I know that'll happen for both of us. For those of you that can't see, the Kleenex is available. Have it <laughs> like Greg has his too. Yeah. <laughs> oh. well, I think that for me, when I say that healing is tricky, I think it's because I know that if you think of a traditional medical model of, of healing, it kind of assumes that you're restoring something to a, to a previous state, that something's getting back to what it used to be. Maybe it'll be weakened or attenuated in a way, but it, but it's kind of going back to something that resembles what it was before. And so in the case of a broken bone, for example, um, there was a bone there before, and it, it had a certain firmness to it and structure to it, and then something happened. And then things needed to be put in place, maybe a splint or, or certain types of care that allowed it to come back to a state of relative strength or be kind of like what it used to be. And I feel like when we speak about adoption and, and relinquishment, uh, oftentimes you'll know this, that people mention this as a, a preverbal trauma. So there's, there's a, a difference in what happens to somebody before the self and the language exist, 
And therefore, when we talk about healing, we, we tend, we, I think, are trying to speak about returning to a state that really kind of didn't exist before that. And I've heard a lot of people talk about this before. I've heard Paul Sunderland talk about it. I have adoptee friends who talk about this, for example, that there's th- this um, unformed self. We, we didn't have the language. We didn't have the concepts. We had we had this happen to us. And now we're, we're trying to get to a, a place, which I think it, it's easy to talk about it as healing, but it's harder to envision it that way because it's not restoring something that, that was there before. It's not returning to a state of firmness and, and stability that, that used to be there. Uh, so this is why I, I consider it to be tricky because all of these methods of, of speaking of like talk therapy and, and somatic therapy, I think are meant to do something which is very helpful. I've, I've been through talk therapy a number of times in, in different contexts, not so much lately, um, as I kind of feel like I sort of exhausted the limit of it for me as, as that type of modality. But somatic therapy might be interesting for me because it, it would deal with something that could be pre-self, for example. But we're really, I think, talking not about returning to a state that was there before, but but building something new on on the foundation that we do have. So for me, I will speak about about coping strategies. I will speak about um, lessening the impact, for example, which is, you know, that that uh, in terms of being an adoptee and experiencing trauma and trauma responses, well, how do we lessen the impact of those on our lives, on the lives of people we love? Uh, how do we get less reactive at times? Um, all of that, I think, goes along with what, what normally is considered healing, but we're not really returning to a state that existed before. We're just going on to something that's that's a new foundation and a way to put something in place now. So I, I consider this kind of as, as a building effort rather than, than a restoration effort. It's something that hasn't existed before. And of course, everybody's born and our, ourselves developed. But in the case of adoptees, because we did have that unique experience of, of loss that imprinted on our nervous systems in, in indelible ways, changed change neural pathways, did all these things to us. I think that learning to lessen the severity of that and learning like to, to take a pause when, when you feel that a reaction is coming, for example, is probably the, the best thing that the most of us can do. And I like to stress that I know that trauma impacts people differently, that Trauma being traumatized is is a very individualized thing. So people people feel differently; they re- react differently on an individual basis. But the trauma itself was something that happened to all of us. So that exists, and what we can do with it, I think, in, in the best of circumstances, at least for me, is is kind of go forward. And so, if that's what people mean by healing, then I don't have any issue with that as language. It's when it, I think, is more popularly associated with with uh, returning to a different state or a previous state that it becomes uh, more tricky for me. Oh, great. That was so beautifully answered. What it felt like for me is a relief because healing, I use it a lot. I actually have it on the front page of my book. It's too late now to take it off, but it, it's like an obligation to do all of these steps. It's almost like this arrival point that feels unattainable. And I don't know about you guys and the audience, but it's just like, how do we heal? But I love the idea of coping 
because coping means we can actively do something in real time. And you're right, we can't go back and restore something. And maybe that's where some of the frustration comes in with traditional therapy and other modalities. So I think that's really, really interesting. What are you thinking about that, Amy? Yeah, um, when you did mention that, healing, like you're describing, we don't have that place to go back to as a healed person because we never were in that state. So to cope with or to lessen the impact actually makes it sound to me more doable. Like you said, you can take action towards it where um, I know some people, when you talk that you're in therapy and you still see a therapist, they're like, oh, you haven't fixed that yet. You know, and it's not that we're broken. It's that we need to find that space within our body to um, cope, to live the life we have, knowing all of the um, trauma, the grief and the loss, but not have it impact us um, on a day-to-day basis. So I love that. And I, I think you explained that so great. And I think that it almost gives me a relief to heal it, to feel it that way rather than heal, to cope. Yeah, and I think the audience will feel the same way, Greg. And I'd love to to dive in a little bit deeper into how how did you arrive at that? And what can you offer the audience that you use for yourself? I know you recently had mentioned uh, music is one thing that you love, you know, because I think sometimes artistic outlet is really important. But but what specifically, because I know you talk to a lot of people that you are involved with the Adoption Trauma Network. So I just want to tap into your knowledge. Yeah, and, and I wish to point out, of course, I don't have any, any training in it specifically. I haven't done a lot of research in that. I, I've been fortunate to, to have a lot of very knowledgeable, influential people who have sat with me and gone over in great detail a lot of a lot of this stuff that that maybe is more difficult to come by without without a specific educational path for example and i think this is the great strength of our community is there are very knowledgeable and capable people in the community who have done this research who have have these degrees and these credentials and of course i'm not pretending to to be any of them but being in dialogue with people in the community, even even people at, at a more grassroots everyday level who also can articulate this is really where, where that's formed. And so it, I wouldn't want to say that these are these are my ideas and I came up with this or something like that. It's it's been um the the impact of other people's very thoughtful exposition of this for me and in ways that allowed me to go, I really resonate with that. And sometimes I'll, I'll take on that language and start to speak in that, in that way as well, because there is a common, I think, language that we develop in our community that allows us, allows us to have this, this interaction that's really meaningful in a lot of ways for people that didn't have that language before, didn't know how to express things before. So I've been fortunate to have those very articulate people come alongside me and be in, in lengthy conversations with them over time. And also, you know, I would present the things that I was thinking. And sometimes I feel like that, oh, that was kind of deficient what I said, because I I was hearing more from people who said, well, let's look at it in this perspective, exam, for example. And that was helpful for me because I did 
tend to think of therapy as, as fixing things when I had been in it. And I always failed at it because I was never fixed. And it turned out it was never really addressing what was going on with me because nobody ever spoke to me about what, what trauma was or what, why it might be there if it was there. So in this case, I think it's been really the the maturity and knowledge of other people in our community that I've been edified by that's allowed me to, to say, this is my position on this now versus something I came up with. I, I really didn't come up with anything. No, I appreciate you saying that, Greg. Uh, it, it makes sense because that is the power of hearing each other's stories and also having the experts surrounding us with this legitimate information that helps legitimize our feelings and our thoughts. And I know for most of us, the the daily struggle is real and it, it varies. Um, it varies a lot. So we just want to offer some sort, some sort of comfort. And I think the name of fireside just resonates with me too. Um, just the, the concept of that is so, so appealing to me that people can come together, you know, in this beautiful way to, to share in a safe place. It's warm. I really do love that. And, and can you talk a little bit about how fireside like weaves into your, your journey and how you're helping other dogs. And I'd like to know too, what it does to, for you personally to be involved with something so wonderful. So for me, fireside was a really unexpected thing to come into my life really early in the adoptee community in 2021. I came out of the fog in July and by the, around the middle of August, I was invited into this private group called Fireside Adoptees. It was about 35 people at the time. And we just hit, we just hit a thousand. So it's, it's grown tremendously. And it was, it was just a small group. It had a, a leadership team and I had no experience of really being in dialogue with adoptees at that point. So the, the concept of Fireside, there were three founders of Fireside and the main idea from Amanda Baum, who's who's the chief founder of Fireside, was a place where people would, just like it sounds like, go and gather and, and there would be a certain sentiment or feeling or warmth in the air about it, in the atmosphere there, and, and they could talk. And so the Zoom platform was really important for that in Fireside because twice a week on Thursdays and Sundays, people can come and it's like sitting around a, a campfire for them. They, they can share. They listen to topics. They listen to interviews, things that we do. They also have a chance to, to share if they feel like it. But it's also a place where you can sit quietly. People do that by fires too and listen. They don't have to have cameras on. They can be, feel like their presence is important just for what it is, whether they feel like they're a contributor or not. I always want people to feel that there's no pressure to, to be any certain way in fireside adoptees, that, that their experience is valid, whether they feel they had a quote good experience or or unfortunately a bad experience, that that the who they are as as adoptees is valid just by itself. And for me, what fireside gave me, first of all, it gave me a chance to hear stories from a lot of people. That was probably the greatest thing it gave me. And it gave me a chance to express and facilitate, which was something I didn't, I won't say I didn't have any experience with it because I've been in, in Zoom calls for work now since COVID had started. So probably 30 calls a week on Zoom. 
for months and months. And suddenly I'm in this, this space called Fireside Adoptees. And Amanda said, I think you should, should lead one of the calls. I thought, I can do that. This is something I've been doing now. I'm a very shy person. I'm a very quiet person. But because of, of hundreds and hundreds of these Zoom calls, I thought, I, I could probably do that part. And then she said, I'd like you to, to try interviewing somebody. So that was like two months out of the fog. And suddenly I was, I found myself interviewing an adoptee. It was, uh, that's the big, the very biggest thing Fireside gave me was the stories of other people and a chance to, to feel along with them in, in what they share. So if we're going to call that healing or edifying or, or strengthening of, of the, the warm feelings about it and the sentiment that's what Fireside has, has continued to give me. And it also has given me a lot of friends, lots and lots of friends, people, genuine people who who just have wanted a place to be heard and seen and, and valued. And that's, yeah. I think that's a really great gift for anybody to have who comes into our space. So we, we try to try to do that in Fireside, keep that warmth. And it's become kind of this this single name, which is really interesting, right? I mean, there are very clinical sounding adoptee support groups, and then people can say fireside, just a single word, and a lot of people know what you're talking about, which I think is a tribute again to the the leaders in the group and the founders who had the vision to say, this is what we want this space to look like and what we want it to be for other people. I just think it's so beautiful and so touching that so freshly out of the fog that you were able to... Um have the courage to do that. Um, and if we are going to use the word healing, I think that this is a perfect place to, to put that. Um, gosh, Greg, I don't know. I'm just getting emotional just thinking about all of the work that, that you are doing in the community. And Amy and I were discussing before we press record, I think, well, I get a Kleenex, maybe, maybe you could talk, talk to Greg. I will too. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> yeah um good luck amy i think greg yeah. was the yeah i'm <laughs> having a drink but it's um, just tea got two of them now pretty much the first person that from the adoptee community that reached out um and i think i was kind of new joining um fireside it was not many members back then either and i just remember greg um you know, hosting one of the Zooms and um, he, he welcomes everyone and he makes you feel comfortable because a lot of adoptees, when they first go to a group, you're not sure what to expect. Um, I know I sat back with my camera off for many of the first initial meetings that I was able to join. Um, and I believe almost after every meeting, Greg would send a you know message through Facebook, like, so glad we saw you there today. I'm glad you could be there. And it just made me know that that was a comfortable place, a safe space to um, hang out and listen. Um, sometimes I was able to share depending on what was going on in my world. Um, but that brings me to something, Greg, is that you give so much back to others and our community. And Heidi and I were talking earlier just about things and that a lot of people give, right? But I, we feel like adoptees go overboard in the giving and the giving and wanting to please and helping others, that it's exhausting. 
And um, how do you care for yourself in those moments? I, I mean, I think you have a lot of people surrounding you, but like, you probably have to take a step back every now and then and rest and think of you. So just if you're willing to share what, what you do to bring yourself, I don't know, that, that grounding that you need, that inner peace that Greg needs. I can't pass up commenting on what you said about, I didn't realize that the interactions we had in messenger were, were that important for you. So thank you for that. That really touched me. And absolutely, I think that's, there's not a lot more I could ask for for that. Just to know that somebody felt comfortable in our space. Um, I think that, you know, I, I'm definitely a, a people pleaser and I'm an Enneagram too. People go, oh no, you're a manipulator. You're this, you're that. Um, and for me, I, I always try to make sure that when when I pour into people, that I do it for the best of intentions and not so that now it's true that I receive back from people and it's overwhelming sometimes, but I, I want the most genuine effort on my part to be really available for, for people where they are and not just to go, now they're going to like me back. This is great. Um, that, that does happen. But that's, I think, a byproduct of just trying to be as present for people as you can be. And so I tread that edge of the people-pleasing part. I was that way my whole life. But I also have learned, I think, to temper it more. I'm not perfect at it with making sure I'm, I'm coming at it from the best and the healthiest perspective that I I can offer to it. I don't always succeed at it. But yeah, it can be it can be draining at times. And I think when I was first in the community, I was there all the time. I was always I was always on the Zoom calls. You know, I would host five, six times a month sometimes. Uh, if there, because we were we were still forming things, and it took a lot of it took a lot of repeat efforts from from the leaders at that point because the group wasn't self sustaining. It's still not, but it's much more so than it was. So like if people didn't post in the group, there weren't any posts in the group unless the leaders posted in the group. So kind of had to keep things moving along that way. Uh, and then I joined also the, the adoption trauma network and started in 20, 2022 facilitating them there for six or seven months as well. And yeah, there, there's a time where it, it can be tiring. I think people have a perception of me that I'm, always involved in it though and i'm not always involved in it so i don't go to fireside nearly as much as i used to because i i i don't think i would have the energy to to do that all the time and when i get that drained then i i can't offer the best i have for, for anybody really for myself or anybody else at that point so i've i've learned to pace the involvement i have um, in the online sense and so instead of hosting fireside multiple times a month, maybe I'll host twice a month or have two interviews a month or something like that. I would like to do more interviews because they're very energizing for me. But it's it's difficult, right? It's hard because you're necessarily involved in what's a really emotional and impactful dynamic for all the people present. You don't know what, what the next thing will be said is going to be. You don't know what somebody came into the group feeling 
And if you're in a facilitator role, you you kind of have this expectation coming at you of steadiness. Someone described me as very steady in the groups. And that's not always easy to do. Um, sometimes, and I, I've told people this, and they've been surprised, there have been times that the, the intensity in the group can be such that when you get off the call, when you're done, all you can really do is lay your head down because you weren't expecting that. Yeah, and I agree. Yeah, people share. I, I feel you. <laughs> yeah, you do, you do know. I knew this is what I knew we would both feel because. Well, it's like we're grieving together and yes. the people pleasing. I think every, a lot of us can resonate with this. This this little group right here. And I heard something interesting about it the other day. And I wonder if, if this uh, makes sense to, to all of you, that when you're an adopted person, you're tuning out and you're tuning into other people's energy to see if you're safe. And that stood out to me because I thought I was some empathic person that could really tune into people's feelings. But all along, it was a coping me mechanism to try to stay safe. And that to, for you to have a safe place, I think that's why it, it moves all of us so much that, that do this work, that people trust us to come to what I call a sacred space, Greg. That's what I call it too. And to share, because I don't know, I can only speak from my own experience, but it can be profoundly lonely to walk this walk, even if you're surrounded by people. And to me, that's the hardest kind of loneliness is when you're, you're you're not feeling understood. So being able to come to a place where you can process things and, um, you know, it's just, I think it's vital, vital for our community, for sure. Online has a certain intensity and in-person has a totally different dynamic. And so we've talked about a little bit about Adoptees Connect. Mm -hmm. Energy and an adoptees connect meeting is is totally different uh, because it doesn't feel as much of a support group type of type of environment. It's 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 collegial in a certain sense. It's and I'm not saying that that uh, support groups are not enjoyable. They they certainly are because you experience all the emotions in them. They aren't just all grief. There there are a lot of other things in there. But uh, online and in person, the the adoptee community in person can be a very invigorating thing for me. It can energize me by itself, and I don't feel like I have to take time away from this. I never feel that about, for example, Adoptees Connect, leading Adoptees Connect once a month. doesn't feel like this is the biggest energy train. What am I going to do? We look forward to it, and we enjoy each other's company. And so I find th that sort of sustenance there. You asked about music, and I've only just recently thought about how important that is to me because I've, I've been a drummer for about 40 years. I'm not, I still have plenty of issues with, with drumming. I have a big perfectionist streak that makes it difficult for me, but, but I'm learning to say, why do I, why do what I do enjoy it? Cause I don't always, what, what is it I enjoy about it? And it's the way I feel and the in-tuneness I feel. And I think that's that provides some kind of harmony for me that that does let me let go of certain things, uh, and I'd like to cultivate that more deeply. Oh, that's so great, Greg! You did say drumming, right? I did because I have one bad ear, and I'm like, I think you said I literally took up drumming during my recovery. Oh, did you? Wow! And there's something about the feeling of the vibration coming through that just makes me feel alive. <laughs> it is. 
it's huge to have that creative outlet. And I, I believe that a lot of us, as you said, it's not all about grief. It's about the strength that our community has and the creativity. Um, I think these experiences, even though they're so painful, our, our souls are more tender and, and enriched. And we have a lot to give, in my opinion. And, you know, Greg, I'd love to dive a little deeper into your personal story now. I know that you know, you've shared a lot about your, the maternal side. Are you feeling up to talking about what the latest is in your own personal adoption journey, maybe with your paternal side and, and where you're sitting with that? Yeah, I've, I've looked forward to that. It's been a, a while since I, since I talked to anybody about that in the, in a recording. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk about that. It's been it's interesting, anybody who's been in reunion on both sides knows how different it can be one side to the other. And most of my energy had gone into to my re maternal reunion until it broke down in, in late 2021. Um, I'm still working through how I feel about that, whether I think it's possible to restore that or not on some, some level. I've I'm coming to terms with that still. I still have a lot of emotions around it. But the same thing that happened at that time within about a month of that breakdown of the reunion with, with my birth mother was actually making contact with my late father's side and finding things there I, I could not have imagined. By that, I mean, I had an inkling of you know the number of siblings I'm, I probably had. I I knew my father had, had died in 1988 when I was 19. So I, I knew that um, I would find certain things, but I, I didn't know what it was going to be like. And I stepped into, in a very gingerly way, making some connections that I think, I think we probably can relate to feeling like a shiny penny at first when you come into some of these reunions. There was a little bit of that happening and a little bit of, uh, wow, this is amazing from from the the people I was connecting with. And some of that is, I guess they call it like a patina wearing off or something. It's understandable. Some of the excitement of being in reunion wanes for the non-adoptee. I'll say it that way because I don't feel like we just go like, yeah, this is all right, I guess. I feel like for me, it's like a breathless kind of, I can't wait to hear from the next person. What am I going to hear from them? What do I do to stay in contact with them? And uh, I think it's also the fact that we we know we tend to have to prop up both sides of of the reunion, which is I wish I wish the phone was going to vibrate all the time with people like I've just been waiting to contact you, you know, all day long. But I know that most of the conversations will come come from me, from me initiating that conversation, and that's. Not not a slight on my family. It just means I I'm I think more widely aware of this than I was in my maternal reunion, where when things started to break, I couldn't figure out what was going on, and so I approached this very differently, meeting my father's side of the family, and they they were pretty forthcoming about something which was uh, was a little hard to take at first, which is that they're a very fragmented family and they were honest about the fact that they don't communicate well. So if I had felt like I was going to land somewhere that was full of warmth and 
and an invitation to come in and join everybody. There was some of that, but it was always greatly tempered by the fact that I knew that they themselves had a whole family trauma of being broken up. They had tremendous division in the family and fracturing that meant, and they were forthcoming and saying, we don't, we don't talk well in our family. We don't communicate well. We're not used to you, not just because you're an adoptee that we didn't know about, but because we don't have to know how to talk to each other. And I found that, that that's held true, unfortunately, which is that people that grew up as siblings, like my aunts and uncles, had fallen out of touch with each other. Sometimes they didn't even know each other were alive. Um, it, I was surprised to find my my brother was alive, somebody said. Um, things like this. So I, I realized I had come into something that wasn't what I was expecting. I know nobody can know what to expect in a reunion, but at least they were, they were honest about where they were. That we're not probably going to be as warm and receptive as you may want us to be, but it's not against you personally. We just don't know how to do it. And so I knew right away, okay, whatever connections are going to be there, I have to not push them too hard. I have to accept whatever I'm going to get back and be okay with that. And that's that's kind of what's happened in a surprising development, though. Um, I found that one or two people have have really warmed up to it. They're still saying this is hard for me, but they they enjoy hearing from me, and they're they're now telling me things at, at greater length. They're telling me about what happened in the, in the family. They're telling me little things about their days. And, and they're also saying, this is so different for me to be talking to anybody. My father told me not that we'd ever talk to outsiders. We never did this. We never did. So I'm, I'm not used to you, but I want to keep hearing from you, Greg. I want to keep hearing your messages. I'm kind of known for recording lengthy voice messages to people. And so I'll send these to my aunt, for example. And she's just started opening up in more recent months and I still have never heard her voice um but she's sending me these messages now and they're coming more regularly and they're starting to come without me reaching out first and they're talking about the family and they're talking about why why it's difficult in the family and things I might not have known but they're also containing like I said everyday things which show that for me that the comfort level is is growing, that, that I'm starting to be more somebody that's received more easily and that they always conclude with really wonderful, almost like benedictions, blessings, blessings on um, really, really wonderful because I, I didn't know for a long time whether any of those connections would ever grow in my paternal side. And at least one of them is starting to I hope she I hope she will listen to this because I really want her to know. And I tell her repeatedly, this is a big deal for an adopted person. I know this is hard for you. Let me tell you why it's particularly meaningful for me. And so I've gone on to talk about that and she's reflected back. I never thought about that. I never would have thought about that. I always thought adoption must be wonderful and all of these other things. And I never thought about what it might be like for you to. To, not to have these things, not to have somebody you looked like, not to have people you could talk to about your medical history, things like this. 
And so that those have been the developments on my paternal side. It's exciting to open my phone on Christmas morning and have a message from my aunt in Phoenix um, that I didn't say Merry Christmas first. It's just there. So uh, this is this is probably what I wanted to share about the, the developments in terms of, of how my re reunion has gone. And I'm looking forward to hopefully solidifying some other things. I'm trying to make some stronger connections with some of my brothers. And uh, there's certainly a lot of a lot of things going on in the family that that are are difficult and challenging, but maybe maybe we're making some progress. And I thought for a moment it would be weird if a person coming back and trying to get into the family, everybody go, why why do you want to be in this family? But if that person to some degree can start getting people to to talk to other members in the family, I thought that was a pretty a pretty cool thing. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I just, most of us with reunion, we have such high expectations and, and my very, you know, dark advice, I guess, is low expectations, um, <laughs> you know, going in and I'm not an expert, but I love the fact that you accepted what was happening and now something unexpected is happening that's really beautiful and you're able to impact this family with your tenderness and they're able to see you and know you that uh, amy what do you think i just it's very moving it's very moving because i know there's been conversations before about being the adoptee who feels left out and um to get to have your phone right you getting the messages on christmas morning um without you sending them first like that's a great feeling. That's a wonderful feeling. Um, and the fact that the family, your paternal family wasn't so connected. And like you said, here's a stranger coming in and you're getting them to converse and to talk about their family. Um, that's a bonus in itself as well as your aunt who is saying, oh my gosh, I never thought that it would matter to have someone you looked like. I didn't think it really mattered about your medical history. Um, you know, these are things that people take for granted. And and I just think it's amazing. And I, I just feel for you, like I can imagine the feeling you had yesterday getting those oh, yeah. messages. I, I, just, so. <laughs> I just think it's great. I had a similar experience too. I'm like, oh, dang, nice. It wasn't me this time. It's and great. I still do have to prop up other parts of it. I don't want to sound like everybody's just talking to me all the time. That's that's not happening either. No, but you get these little morsels of hope. Yeah, which, I'll, which I, will is, take, I will take we'll, them. We'll take them. Not because well, you want to be an irritant to anybody. Just, you know no, no, for sure thing. not. I yeah. know that I, I am quite an irritant, but <laughs> that's a whole nother <laughs> podcast. So one of the things on my list that I would love to talk to you about is anxious attachment, being reactive and unreasonable. Hmm. That basically defines quite a few of us. And I just wonder if you can talk a little bit about that because the attachment issues are real. Mm -hmm. And I think when you come out of the fog and your life is rewritten in those moments, I don't know what that experience was like for you guys, but I felt like it was a life review going backwards. And I just went through this whole thing where everything all the memories shifted to something different. And it was so shocking to my system. 
And, and at that point, that's when I was really aware of the attachment disorders and how they had affected my life. And to this day, even with everything I've learned, I'm still suffering with those things. So I just, I think your perspective, Greg, is so interesting and so wonderful. Um, so if you don't mind diving in. Yeah, I think that the, the anxious absolutely applies to me. I think what my my mom always told me, and she says it with kind of a laugh, like it's cute or something, but she says, um, took two 20-minute naps a day. We were joined at the hip. I could never put you down. Ha, ha, ha. And I think about that, and I realize now what it was. There, there was like this primal terror in that. Don't leave me. Don't, don't, don't let go of me. It wasn't that I was being, oh, uncooperative and I wouldn't sleep. There was something deep going on inside of me, even when I was that age, which again has this pre-verbal aspect too, right? That it was, it was cemented in there already that, that there was something going on. Um, it led, I think, to being very docile and compliant in my life growing up to the point where I wouldn't do anything to defend myself. If somebody wanted to bully me, for example, okay. Um, someone grabbed me by, by the collar to keep me from picking up a piece of gum. And I just fell kind of limp and do that. Um, and I never had arguments in my family. I never fought with my sisters or fought with my parents. I never rebelled. Uh, I think though, what was interesting is I would say that the, the anxious part of it came out much more strongly when you mentioned reactive parts of this in, in vital relationships in my, my marriage, which is coming to an end right now, in fact. And I'm sorry, Greg. I don't think. And with my, with my children, raising my children, where there were responses that would come out of me that didn't make any sense to people like why did he get in the car and drive off suddenly where's he going when will he be back why did why was he mad suddenly and repeating patterns of things like that that appeared or telling him I'm, I'm going i'm leaving i'm i'm out of, and then my wife saying what can you stop doing that and i would say yeah I, i'm sorry i know i keep doing that i didn't know why i was doing that uh and i found that every time i I vowed not to do it again. I would do it again. And I was running away from things. I was, I was avoiding and not, not knowing that I was activated in my nervous system, that I was triggered by something that there was, there was a, a manifestation of, of trauma happening. I, no one ever told me that. They just told me basically like, aren't you ashamed for being that way? That's not the way for you to be or hurting your family. And I did, I did do a lot of damage to the, the people closest to me. And I I wish that that had not happened. And I mean, desperately wish that that hadn't been the way things played out in my life. And I don't mean to indicate that in a purely passive sense, because of course I have, I have accountability for that, some responsibility for that, but I never knew where it came from. And so it could be reactive at times. And uh, one of my friends, adoptee friends, had said in, in the podcast she was on, the anger came later. I remember those words from her. I thought, that's what happened. I probably seemed like a totally different person when I got married in 1995. 
and you go into like 2005, 2006, Grand Reunion, and then I start acting very differently and very reactively at times and didn't have the slightest clue why that would be there. And uh, almost like elements of, of being a different person at, at times. And the combative part of it came up reactive. I mean, I wasn't physically fighting with anyone. I wasn't, I wasn't just difficult to get along with all the time. It was just, there were periods where I would get activated and my response was, was to get angry and run away. And people didn't know where I went. Now, I wasn't gone forever. I was gone for a few hours, but it was very, very damaging to my family. And I, I wish desperately somebody had clued me into what might be going on and given me these coping skills that we talked about here, which is when I, when you asked about what, what sort of things might I do to, to cope better, one of them is learning to step back in the moment of activation, which is really difficult, saying my first impulse is to run away. I still do that sometimes. I do. I admit that I do, but not as frequently as I used to. And it's it's like I try to open up a distance between me and and the feeling I'm having right then to to allow it to dissipate a little so that my rationality can can return a little bit and I can make a better decision about something. Do I really want to run away from it? Do I really want to say something hurtful? Do I really want to do this? And that's been the most helpful thing for me that that uh, I've somehow managed to learn to do again not perfectly but much better than i used to i still feel activations all over the place triggers all over the place sometimes i get really like i said compliant and docile and shut down when that happens other times i feel like i want to just run away from it but uh, so it is a real struggle it's unfortunately the case that you know we enter into relationships and people go what in the world did i step into now this is this is challenging. Why this person is this way? I don't understand this. What's going on with them? And uh, I think for somebody who's who's in a relationship with an adoptee, just having an understanding of why that might be there, it's really helpful. And in my case, it it was too late to to have that understanding be in place and why I would try to cope the way I did and form the connections with people. Why that was important to me and why being in the community was important to me. Those were things that weren't so well understood in, in my context and made it unfortunately the case that, that things came to an end. But I would hope for other people that if their partners, for example, or other significant others in their lives, or even in the case of like with my children, just some understanding of why why it can be the case that adoptees react the way we do. So we're not intentionally trying to hurt anybody or damage our relationships, but it, it really can come out that way so important for us to talk about these things because in my mind <clears throat> why waste the pain if we can help other people have some kind of an awareness uh, about these things and to share with our families when we don't even know what's happening and why we're reacting we don't know and and you know Personally, I've I've raised my son, and what's a gift right now? And I don't know if you're experiencing this with your children, Amy and Greg, but I've I've been having conversations with my 26 year old son and saying, you know, this this is what's happening, and this is why I did A, B, and C, 
And even though I can't go back, the conversations are changing the way that he's looking back at his own life. So, you know, when you say um, it's too late, I just want to say no. <laughs> I mean, too late for some things, maybe, Greg, but yeah, I, I just want to encourage you because I think a lot of healing can happen in just the beautiful honesty that that you're willing to give. And for our children to see, I mean, I think we try to protect, right? But, yeah. but we need to trust that they can handle this. That's what I keep telling myself. So and I, I thank you for that because I still hope to restore some of the, the brokenness in, in my closest relationships. And I, I know I've grown a lot since since they broke down. Of course you have, Greg. And that's all we're we're doing. Amy, can you? Yeah, we're all. <laughs> no, this yeah, is we're cool. all a little. Um, I think. Um, thanks so much for sharing all that, Greg. Because the reactivity that I mean, I know I experienced the same, and just recently with the holidays, um, they're tough. And um, I always want things to be um, the the expectations to be just right and just perfect for my adult children who are 23, 26, and 28, you know? So my husband will say, why, why does everything have to be, why are you so crazy about this? Why? And I've just recently learned um, through my somatic therapy is that my holidays weren't a tradition. tradition. Like, I didn't know what to expect. They, they were different all the time. And I just knew my husband found such comfort with his family when I did too, married into the family to have that, the traditions. And I just wanted to give that to my kids because when I was celebrating with my adopted family, I never felt that comfort. And so I've kind of realized that that anxiousness, that wanting to make everything perfect for my kids because I didn't want them to feel the way I did during the holidays. Mm -hmm. I want them to have the tradition. I want them to feel special and know what to expect. And my husband and I did have a great conversation about this um, before the holidays. And he was like, wow, this huh. makes so much sense that he could understand why I would be so crazy fanatic, like clean this, do this, buy this, this, oh my gosh, this is wrong. And I mean, I didn't even know why I was doing it until now. And then he also did say, it's like our kids are adults. Let's have the conversation with them. You can be upset. Show your emotion. Let them know how you're feeling. And but it's a hard thing because I don't want them to be upset, right? Uh, yeah. But um, I think we just carry that. We carry all that because we want to give them. We want to give our closest friends and family that love and that emotional balance, stability, that inside we don't feel a lot. And like, you know, we slam a door, we leave, we have these reactions that just come from nowhere, it seems. Um, yeah. So it's hard, you know, it's hard, but I really appreciate you sharing that. And it's not too late. Like Heidi said, we can continue to learn and grow and, and work on it. 
Yeah, I have to believe that because without knowing there's a step ahead, it's very easy to sink really quickly, you know, into. Oh, yeah. It's like we just have to keep pulling ourselves forward. This has just been such an incredible time with you. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about? Anything that's important to you? Any message you want to give out to our very beautiful audience? We just found out they're listening in over 49 countries. People are in need of, like, I love the word you use, being edified by these conversations. So with that being said, I I would love to hear from you. I do think it is edifying literally is, is a, a building up, right? Right. So an edifice is a building, something that's been constructed. And we we can do that for each other. And the community isn't always a non-toxic space for people. We know that, unfortunately. And there's no way it can be ever safe, quote unquote, but it, it can be safer and it can be more comfortable for people to to be willing to take risks in and share things about themselves. I think that, for example, people who've never had the experience of coming into an adoptee space and talking with other adoptees, and that happens often. It happens even in the online and also in the person groups. People will show up and be like, I've, I've never done this. Uh, for anybody who might listen to podcasts, for example, like this, the, the wonderful By the Root podcast, and be wondering, is there a place I can go to, to get that kind of support? There, there is that place. There are lots of places like that. And yes, fortunately, some of them will be not as healthy as, as others. I wish that was not the case. I wish that I could say, you always have a great experience, for example, in Fireside Adoptees. Uh, that's our wish. That's our, our mission, our hope for that. But, uh, I would encourage people who maybe, because there's a big isolating feeling being an adoptee when maybe, like I said, people are hearing podcasts and go, I've never made that connection with somebody on a personal level to to reach out and to know that there will be somebody who wants to receive that from you and engage in that that edifying activity with you that building up of helping you feel safer helping or helping you feel more comfortable helping you understand that your perspective and your story are, are valid and they matter and, and they're important and we learn so much from each one of them so I think my word to adoptees is to is to risk a little more in the community because there there really can be rich rewards for it. And I'm sorry when it when it hurts because it does hurt people sometimes. But it can also be really wonderful. Greg, that was just so beautiful thinking about the building because I just don't want people to think we just have to drown and swim in this soupy mess of trauma. It's really about figuring out how, how to sort through it. And like you said, how to cope. Uh, that is really it. That is the key in, in my mind. You're amazing. And, you know, I love I, when I heard your interview and you were talking about something about being unreasonable. I'm like, I'm so glad I'm not the only one. <laughs> because some of the stuff I've done in my life, I'm like, oh my gosh. And I'll just end with a little levity, just about unreasonable. Let's talk about that. So my husband, and I had an argument at a party. He was making fun of how much I spent on boots. And you can see I have boots in the background right yeah. there. Um, so for some reason that just, I asked him to hand me the keys and I literally left him there, came back and made a bonfire with my boots. 
that's how unreasonable I got. And he came home and he's just like, she's crazy. But (laughs) you know what? It's like, you know, on a deeper level, what's happening there? It was anger, like a lot of anger that never got expressed. And I really think a lot of people will resonate with when you were talking about being a child and having everything tamped down, tamped down, tamped down. And then we are activated and then there's just like this explosion or, or whatever coping mechanism. It's just been such a joy, Greg, to, to get to know you. And I really appreciate everything you're doing in our community. You are an amazing human. And I look forward to hopefully coming back on the podcast again and giving us an update. And, wow, yeah. I would be honored too. Thank you so much, Heidi and, and Amy. I appreciate you both. And I love what you do here. And it's so important. Oh, thank you, Greg. It's great to have you back. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope it meant something to you. Tell us your story, learn more about our mission, and support the podcast at www.pulledbytheroot.com.